This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Hey, stackers, just a quick note before we kick off another eight weeks of shows. Today's show, no swearing. Actually, I think Lindsay does swear, but as always, we will beep that out. But this is a very adult topic we talk about. It was very interesting to me how Lindsay's able to take this topic and draw some very, very straightforward life lessons. But probably not a good episode to have little kids in the car unless you want to have some maybe a little more adult conversations. All right. Enough of that. Man, I'm excited about today's show, and I'm excited about the next eight weeks. Glad we're back. Here we go. Here's the song that we'd like to do for all the younger set of people, the teenagers and what have you. This one's called Vacation Zone. Vacation's all that is over, is over. From Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and one fish, two fish, big goals, big wish. It's Dr. Seuss's birthday, so that's why today you can learn anything you want, including from a woman who wrote a book called Bow Down, Lindsay Goldwert. Lindsay shares, because she cares, the lessons she's gathered from dominatrixes? Wait, did I just say dominatrixes on this show? I guess that's what it says. You'll learn today from everything she'll say about getting goals and filling roles. Earlier in the show, we'll talk about an acting pro. What can we learn from Rick Moranis? Don't be an ignoramus. Plus, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline, and for my trivia, still make time. And now, 
two guys who ought to start calling me Mr. Doug. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. I think he's the other side of that relationship. Bringing the whips? I'm fairly certain. Or getting he's, whipped. He, he is definitely the one who gets yes. flogged around here. Yes, yes, yes. Who pays for it? Hey, everybody. Welcome to an exciting another eight weeks of the Stacky Benjamin Show. I am Joe Salcihi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And what a way to kick it off this week. Doug's been naughty. <laughs> financial, financial lessons learn from dominatrixes and our friend from the spent podcast Lindsay Goldberg I've wanted to meet Lindsay for the longest time her podcast is so funny and now she has this new book and it's funny because it seems salacious but wait till you hear a lot of these lessons very very clickbaity I guess way to present some very straightforward stuff which is classic Lindsay can't wait to get into it today's show is brought to you by the stacker got some new pieces of the stacker that just came out Longtime readers of the stacker will be super impressed with the fact that we've got some new ones <laughs> that there'll be another email coming that, that, sometime soon that that there will be another email not only that you can find out where og and i are traveling to next we've got some traveling coming up lots Something of big coming yeah we've got lots of big news too that's coming in the stacker will get it first head to StackyBenjamins.com forward slash stacker for more. Great show today. Lindsay Goldwork kicking off the eight weeks, talking about lessons learned from dominatrixes about you and your money. But first, we've got some headlines. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamins headlines. Our first headline comes to us from the BBC by way of MSN. Did you see this? Film favorite Rick Moranis. Is about to return to the screen. Remember Rick Moranis? Honey, I shrunk the kids. They're making a new one and he's going to be in it. That is Can't all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's all. No financial news. That's it. No. There you go. Moving on. Next story. But wait, there's a big story here. Film favorite Rick Moranis is to return to our screens for a new sequel to the 1980s family comedy, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Actor also started Ghostbusters, Flintstones, Little Shop Horrors, Parenthood in the 80s and early 90s, but stepped away from on-screen roles in 1997. I never realized why Rick Moranis went away. I remember us having this discussion, maybe... I saw the headline about why he went away, but, yeah. so I do know this. His wife had died six years earlier, and he struggled to continue his film career after becoming a single parent and decided to concentrate on raising his children. Although he continued to do occasional voiceovers for films such as Disney's Brother Bear movies, his screen break turned into a 23-year hiatus. I'm a single parent, and I just found that it was too difficult to manage raising my kids and doing the traveling involved in making movies, he told USA Today in 2005. So I took a little bit of a break, and the little bit of a break turned into a longer break. And then I found that I really didn't miss it. Five years ago, Moranis declined to take part in the all-female reboot of Ghostbusters. It didn't appeal to me, he told The Hollywood Reporter at the time. I still get the occasional query about a film or television role, and as soon as one comes along that piques my interest, I'll probably do it. Fans are now excited to learn Moranis will reprise his role as Wayne Zielinski for the new film, currently titled Shrunk. Josh Gad's going to star as Wayne's son, who is an adult, now an aspiring scientist. 
He's also due to appear in a forthcoming Martin Scorsese-directed Netflix documentary called An Afternoon with SCTV. Of course, remember him from SCTV? Do you remember SCTV? Uh, yes. And I remember the name. I don't, I don't remember the can- about it. It was the Canadian version of Saturday Night Live. And it starred just some huge names. Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Levy, who, of course, they're both on Schitt's Creek. Mm-hmm. John Candy was over there some fantastic actors, SCTV. Those were just, that was some phenomenal comedy. But the lesson here though, OG, this is why people should fight for financial freedom because Rick Moranis was able to financially at the point in his life when he needed to step back, he could do it. And I remember earlier in my career thinking about moves that I had to make that were not moves that were great long-term moves, but because of the fact that I had to worry about food on the table tomorrow, I didn't have the ability to make the long-term move. And I remember my goal being back in my 20s, the faster I can get away from this type of move to moves that actually build a sustainable income stream, build a sustainable business so that I don't have to worry about the day-to-day, the better. Because imagine had Rick Moranis not been doing what he did, he couldn't have taken that big hiatus, which sounds like it was fantastic when he said he didn't miss it. You know, five years into the hiatus, he didn't miss it. And if you're not fortunate enough to be able to have earned a lot of money, because I'm sure, you know, relative to everybody else at the time, I'm sure he was in the you know, stratosphere of earnings. Zero, 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 one. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which allowed him to have the ability to save. I think we all, we all kind of fantasize about that. Right. And you think about the, um, you know, the mega millions or the Powerball gets up to a billion dollars or a couple hundred million. You're like, ah, yeah. You know, after, after I blow through a few million, then I'll be able to save. And that mentality is the same, you know, when you're making 50 grand after I blow through this 50 grand, then next year I can start saving or whatever. And so he obviously had the right mentality because he didn't say, well, after this movie's over, yeah, you know, then I'll get the next movie and then. Yeah. But I think this is also a lesson in thinking kind of down the line a little ways and kind of doing that what if planning. You know, nobody likes to think about the tragic events of of uh, what could happen in one's life. And, you know, not all of us are movie actors, None of you and I are, so I don't know. Maybe there's one or two listening, and we, and they have the ability to take you know large swaths of money and put it away in the well. If I ever want to quit, this is where I'm going to take the money from. So how do regular people do that? Well, you just think through it and you say, okay, if I were had to have to go through something tragic like a spouse passing away, and I wanted to stay home with my kids, what would that look like? What would I need in terms of income? And this is the purpose of having the discussion of protection planning, the, the purpose of, in this case, life insurance and, and I, your estate plan. But I like where you started there around protection planning, because I feel like a lot of people start with life insurance. And the reason they start the discussion with insurance is because they're meeting with an insurance salesperson. And by the way, an insurance salesperson is always going to start the conversation smaller with insurance, where the bigger discussion around risk management I think is better because insurance is one way to handle it, but it it encompasses everything. What would I do? And I think the other part of it too, that I heard you say from this story was he had lost his spouse and then was still working and then changed his mind. Yeah. One of the things that I want everybody to recognize is that hopefully you've never gone through that and hopefully you never have to go through that. 
But if you haven't gone through it, then you have no idea how you're going to respond to it. And so you want to build in enough flexibility, which I think is also part of your message of when it's time to harvest, make sure you save some for the next couple of years, you know, that whole story. But you don't know how you're going to feel if something crazy happens in your life. You don't know what you're going to react or how you're going to react. And in, you know, Rick's case here, he lost his spouse, went back to work and then said, no, I don't want to. And so you want to build in enough flexibility. So when you're doing these calculations or you're having these discussions, which nothing is more fun than sitting across the table from your spouse and saying, so I was thinking about when you die, (laughs) how much money I'm going to need. You know, obviously it's not fun to talk about, but you do it while you're quasi sane, you know, and not stressed out, but build in the flexibility because you don't know if you're going to be able to work or want to work, or want to stay home and raise your kids for 25 years. You also bring up a good point here. Often, especially if people are making these decisions around open enrollment, they will decide how much insurance they need themselves. And it really, really, OG, isn't about you. It's about your spouse because you're dead. So your spouse really should be Oh, she'll be fine. She can get a job. Yes. How many times did you hear that? Yeah, not good. But I want to get back to the other one because, you know, on Friday, we're going to have Dustin Hayner join us for the roundtable. Cool guy. But getting away from somebody passing away just without that tragic incident, you know, Dustin was working a full time job and bought a rental property and then bought another rental property, bought another. And, and he's just putting up these little bricks to the point then later on that he was able to do whatever he wanted. And I think that we spend a lot of time, you you said earlier we think about what if I win the lottery? Well, every time that Dustin bought another rental property, he was ensuring that he was going to have the lottery happen to him later. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you take an objective look at your money and start looking at it from the perspective of this thing has a job, you know, this 10 bucks, this hundred dollars, this thousand dollars, this bonus has a job. And some of it is a job of entertainment. Some of it is I need flowers in the backyard because I want it to look pretty. And that's perfectly fine. Or to today's show, got to go see Miss So-and-so down at the dungeon. Or like Doug says, I need a little me time. (laughs) Got my Stacking Benjamins paycheck. It's time for a little me time. Hello, Miss. uh, Yes, exactly. I brought the whips. You bring the chains. But if you treat every dollar as a specific you know, every dollar has a specific job and every dollar has a specific task. And you think, okay, this money can turn around and be, and its job can be to make more money. It seems so inconsequential. You know, I'm having this lesson with my kids right now about money in the bank versus money in their investment account. We have a small stockpile account. We make our kids put half of their money, whatever they get, they have to invest. They pick the stocks, you know, they have what every American has right now, Tesla, Apple, Google, Netflix, you know, Microsoft, Amazon. They have, uh, you know, basically the S&P 500. They have created an S&P 500 fund. I'm just kidding. They haven't. It's all technology stuff. But when they get dividends and my son rolls his eyes and goes, Dad, it's two bucks. It's two dollars. I'm like, yeah, it's two dollars this quarter on that thousand dollar portfolio. I get it. It's not a lot. But your bank account has twice as much money in it. And you got 11 cents. You know, you used that dollar for a higher purpose. You and I were talking about business ownership and looking at different businesses that are for sale. And we were chuckling about the one that uh, includes the 
four hotels for 92 million, you know, you and I could pull our money together, start a little partnership. Imagine what kind of income stream that creates though. I'll bring the 92. Well, do you think this is like monopoly? Do you think the dude started with four hotels? Right. He started with that rental property. Yeah. You know, we look at this as a very difficult thing and this financial independence and flexibility and it can never be me and all that sort of stuff. But if you look at it very objectively, be the third party perspective. You know, you're in it every day, I know, but be the third party perspective and say, what can I make this dollar do? What can I make this bonus do in order to produce higher and better things for me? You know, you'll find the opportunity to have that flexibility down the line. Our second headline comes to us from the Just Start Investing blog. High earner, not rich yet. How to avoid becoming a Henry. Have you heard that term before? A Henry? High earner, not rich yet? Yeah. Yep. Kevin is the author of this blog and wrote, I recently heard a term pop up in a podcast ad, high earner, not rich yet, or Henry for short. Term caught my attention as I was curious to learn more about these mysterious Henry, so I did some research. I was interested to learn more about various Henry situations and how to get out of them. Turns out living paycheck to paycheck isn't just a problem for the middle class and lower class in America. It can be a problem for people who earn high incomes, which present them from accumulating net worth and makes them feel broke. But the difference is here is that uh, high income earners have much more of an ability to get themselves out of that situation, which is why, oh, gee, you and I often start with find ways to raise your income can help solve. Yeah, it dovetails nicely into what we were just talking about. Take your money, try to make more money. Doesn't solve every problem, but it makes it easier for you to do the thing that you need to do ultimately, which is try to lock down your expenses. Five signs you're a Henry. Uh, Number one, of course, is that you make a lot of money. Number two, though, you save and invest little money. Second sign is they don't save or invest enough of their money. For me, he said that'd be defined as saving and investing less than 10% of your income. Would you say saving less than 10% would define you as a Henry if you make more than 100000 I've never heard it defined as people who are not saving. People working their no. way up. Well, I think he's talking about Henry as a lifestyle as, yeah. uh-oh. But if you're somebody who's making over $100,000 and you can't save 10% of your income, clearly you have a problem, which is number three, you live a high cost lifestyle. Uh, well, it just really depends on where you live too. You know, $100,000 in Duluth, Minnesota goes a lot differently than $100,000 in Austin, Texas does. San Francisco. You know, or in San Francisco. <laughs> you need a, that's a whole heck of a lot different in San Francisco. Yeah. But don't you still think that at $100,000, if you can't save 10% of your money for the future, you're still doing it wrong? Well, this is the age old, like, well, next year I'll start my 401k. Once I get the uh, off, then I'll start my 401k. And the reality is, is that we've all been in the situation where we've made one-tenth of the money that we make now. Uh, a lot of uh, charitable organizations, you know, we'll talk about this, uh, church and that sort of thing will say, hey, if you can't give away 10% when you make $100 a year or $100 a week, how are you going to give away 10% when you make a million dollars a year? You know, and when you look at that from the perspective of somebody who's making a thousand bucks a week and you go, well, when I make a hundred thousand bucks a week, I will have all the money in the world to be able to save. But we all know about how lifestyle creep works. So the answer is not to go from zero to, all right, I got to save 20%. You know, I've never saved anything and now I'm going to max out my 401k. You know, you can't do that. Start by saving 2% and then six months from now, increase it to 3%. And then six months from now, increase it to 4% or whatever you can do. Start with a low amount and slowly increase it over time, waiting until tomorrow or saying, well, in five years from now, when I get my such and such a thing, you know, and I 
get promoted again, then I'll start saving or whatever. That's falling into that rich dad, poor dad trap, you know, made famous by Robert Kiyosaki years ago. This, this piece presents a five-step fairly cookie cutter way to look at this. And it's funny because when I first saw this, the reason I like this piece is when I first saw this, I thought, oh, this is cookie cutter. But then I thought, great advice usually is kind of cookie cutter. You know, like when I hear these complex plans, first you need a charitable remainder trust. (laughs) And then generally I think, and don't get me wrong, those can be good if you, if you're looking at huge net worth numbers and it can get complicated, but usually it's very straightforward. Number one, set a budget and make a plan. Who knew that that might be number one. Number two, then save and invest. Number three, practice mindful spending and saying no. Then number Four, avoid lifestyle inflation. Well, turns out it was a four-step plan, OG. I thought it was five. (laughs) I'm like, but there's one more good one. No, there's not. No, that's it. It was so great. It was step five. Go back to number one and do it all again. Yes, lather, rinse, repeat. I think that is lesson number one is that success is going to be about lather, rinse, repeat on some of those good habits. And and also back to our first headline with Rick Moranis, number one, what are you doing to ensure that you are working on your financial independence? And as important is your risk management strategy in place. Lindsay Goldwert is somebody that I've wanted to meet for a long time. She's had a very funny podcast called Spent that is uh, not only very funny, it is in some ways a lot like ours. She's not trying to teach anything, OG. She's talking to people like comedians about their financial habits, and it ends up being very, very fun radio. Leslie's worked with some of the biggest names in personal finance as a journalist and just a great writer, but she's out with a new book called Bow Down, Lessons Learned from Dominatrixes. Let's learn some of those right now with Lindsay. Coming down the stairs to the basement on the Bow Down book tour, it's our new friend, Lindsay Goldward. How are you? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, it's about time I got to talk to you because my friends, Rich and Marcus from the Paychecks and Balances show, they talked to you a couple of years ago. And even then during that conversation, I was like, I need to talk to Lindsay. And you, you know how things go. You're like, yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to do that. So I'm glad oh, that we finally got you on the book tour. Yeah. Yeah, I met them at uh, FinCon in 2000 and something. Um, I think we met online at In-N-Out Burger. And we struck up a friendship. <laughs> I was emceeing at that uh, FinCon. I was the MC of that that one, yeah. yeah that was fun. Yeah. Small world. So we got close. We almost made it. Yes, yes. I want to ask you, you're working as a financial writer, and at the same time, you start up doing stand-up comedy. How did those two things go together? It's very funny. I always dreamed of doing stand-up comedy. It was my dream as a child. I was a very strange child. I decided that I wanted to do it. And at the same time, that I had, I was sort of figuring out what to do with my career. I had been a journalist for a long time, um, and I still am, but I was working in the newsroom. And I just decided at one point that I just needed to change change my life and follow a dream. So I started doing stand-up. At the same time, I was working at Capital 
I just ended up getting a job at the, the app capital. Yeah, um, with a Q, a, the way it's supposed to be sold. Capital with a Q, yep. I still think the world of those guys. And um, I just had this idea. I was in the shower one day as all good ideas happen. And I said, um, it would be really great to do a funny podcast about money, to talk to comedians about their money mistakes. So I just was, started to find ways to bring in this interest I have in money. I'm not a financial expert per se. I'm not a CFP, but I do know, I do understand a lot of it. And I do understand a lot of the behavior aspects of things. And I am very interested. I'm an enthusiast. So suddenly I just started thinking of ways to bring my comedy background with my interest in money and the idea that every story is a money story, whether it's a family, dating, everything is a money story. If you find the right hook. Yeah. It's interesting because as I was prepping for today's discussion, and it was so funny because you get the same <laughs> negative review that we get. Not enough nuggets, Lindsay. You're not telling people the answers of the world. What the hell's wrong with you? I know. I, I hear that. And it's funny, you know, at the time, you know, I didn't feel like I could give any kind of advice. And then um, and I felt it was irresponsible. <laughs> And then when I went to, after that, I went to go work for Stash. I became another personal finance app. I went, I became their editorial director and I became a lot more knowledgeable about saving and investing. Like, but I, I still don't want to give advice. I think I can give um, encouragement and I can give empathy, but I'd rather have someone else come on and give the advice. I don't know, but it is funny. People do want a lot from their podcasts, but there's some people that feel comfortable telling people what to do. And I'm more of a listener. And I'm more of an empathizer. And then if someone has questions, get someone else in the room to answer them. So, yeah. <laughs> I like what you, well, well, and I like what you say at the beginning of the book, which is that the stories to you and to me too are much more interesting anyway. And, and I frankly think that we learn from a real story much more than, and you say this, I'm quoting you, much more than a TED Talk. Yeah, I just prefer, it's just my taste. I'd rather hear a work story or a salary story or a health insurance story or like a labor dispute story from somebody who's was in it from an interesting perspective. You know, the book, um, you know, Bow Down, I interviewed dominatrixes from all over the country um, about how to get what you want. And it, the book ended up being kind of sexy. I initially sold the idea as kind of a business book, you know, with this idea of who are the most assertive women I could think of, you know, it was kind of, but in the end it ended up becoming a little more, you know, a little more personal and emotional because I had a lot of stuff personally that I wanted to figure out how to say I wanted. But um, in the end, I just rather hear a, a financial issue from a comedian or hear about trusting your intuition from a dominatrix. Uh, you know, I just, I think entrepreneurial stories are more interesting when they're from people who have a better story. Wanna, maybe that's the daily news journalist in me. <laughs> well, no, and me too. When I first started off, I'm a former financial planner and I thought that I was going to give great advice on the internet. And going back, it was so damn boring. It was so incredibly boring. And and the Hard. more that people, you talk to real people about stuff and I'm sure you get pitched for spent all the time and I get pitched by all these experts and I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, we'll have some experts on, but I'd much rather talk to, I'd rather yeah. talk to you about comedians and about what you find interesting about them or dominatrixes. Yeah, because I'm not an expert, I have my own idea of what financial literacy should also include. I think that it's important to know about IRAs and 401ks and all that. It is important, but that's not what I'm here to say. I'm here to, from a power perspective, you know, people, you have to feel confident enough to ask questions. You have to know that it's not your fault for not understanding the fine print, but you have to ask what the fine print is. You should be able to just have a basic understanding of what you see 
in the in the news about what's happening because you should know what to be mad about. So I think there's different kinds of financial literacy that can make you give you power back. And my theory is that if you can know when to ask questions, again, if you can read the fine print and you can tell when you're being sold to and you're being scammed, you're already 50% ahead of of the pack. So to me, that's a part of financial literacy that I don't think people think is as quite as important. And that's something that everyone can relate to. Not everybody has money for it to put to a 401k, but everybody can access that information of telling people like, Hey, like why are you hard selling me? I want to dive into the book here in a second, but before I do that, I don't know about your money story. Are you somebody that's generally awesome with money? Or are you more like me where you're a financial disaster and had to create a bunch of like walls for yourself? Yeah, I definitely, I'm an emotional eater. I'm much better at being an emotional. I'm, I was a little bit of an emotional spender and I'm getting better at that. I have a lot of issues with money and guilt. You know, my dad raised me to be extremely responsible with money. My dad is has, is a, you know, very self-taught guy. I felt because I was a creative person that I couldn't be good with money. I couldn't, um, I was never terrible with money. I never, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't go out and buy a Ferrari. I wasn't like a shopaholic or anything, but I, I saved my taxes the last minute and I, I just sort of, I wasn't great about it. I wasn't great at like setting money aside for goals or budgeting. I just sort of started, I dealt with my money in a very linear fashion. Like I'll deal with it as it happens. I wasn't very strategic. And I think that it's a challenge. It's, it's discipline. And as somebody who is becoming more disciplined as they get older, I have a lot of empathy for people. You know, it's not really fun. And if you think you're a creative person like myself, you feel like you're not trained to do it. You're not a math brain, not a business brain. So I also try to talk to other liberal arts and artsy people to be like, it's okay. You know, like you don't have to be a genius to do it. You just have to have believe in yourself enough to think that you deserve to take a little bit of better care of your money and not just feel like F it. We're all, we're all going down, right. which a lot That's of people right. feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I met those people. The, yeah. Well, we've interviewed, so you and I both have interviewed some of those people. When uh, There's a whole different deal, but I don't get why so many creative people, and this is maybe the next time we have you on, but so many creative people think that they're powerless around money because I personally, frankly, think that this space where people like, I don't know if you know Austin Kleon, but the Steal Like an Artist guy, uh, if you're familiar with that book, but like, you know, this this place where business meets creativity is such a such a phenomenal place. And I think that creative people are so, they're so used to thinking, this is a horrible term. I, I'm, I'm going to throw up in my mouth when I say it. They're used to thinking out of the box. <laughs> that, that, that there's a lot of financial so bad. I don't know what I was oh, expecting. Oh my God. That was horrible. I, I hate that, but we'll the, put a pin in it. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> Perfect. We'll circle back. Sorry. I'm done. I'm done. Sorry. Yeah. Nice work. That, uh, that, I don't know. Maybe it's between our ears, Lindsay. It's interesting. I think things are changing a little bit. I think that the creative work out there that's independent from commerce is harder and harder to come by. You know, I know some people are happy, you know, there's advertising and things like that, but in my day as a, you know, child of the nineties, you know, there was a lot of like, you're a sellout, you're this, you're that people cared more about that sort of thing. But then again, people are just feel very much at the mercy of, they just don't have any faith that they're ever going to be paid fairly. Yeah. They just have, they don't have a lot of trust in companies who are going to pay them. So I feel like they, they feel like it doesn't really matter. Also, people do not have the confidence to ask for more. Yeah, it's totally true. And I am the same person. I, I really identify with people who listen to me and who talk to me. Um, it's taken me a lot to be able to say, you know, people will say, you know, I'll pay you $200 for an 800 word, word article. And I say, can we make that 350? And I used to feel like people would think I was a jerk or I was greedy. And then if they just say, oh, we can't do it, 
then I have to make a decision. But you can say it in a way that's very kind and honest and direct and gracious. There's a way to ask for what you want in a way that feels natural to you. I am nice. I am gracious. But I also think that's absurd to be paid $200 for a 600-word article that's going to have interviews in it. And even getting paid $350 to me is still ludicrous. But if it's worth it to me, and if they say no, then you sort of know where you stand with them. You know what kind of an opportunity it is. But I, I have become brave in my later life. And most people aren't. And they don't ask for, they, they, they're all they're just afraid that people are going to roll their eyes at them. And if a place rolls their eyes at you, then it's probably, that place probably isn't in great condition. And it's probably not as healthy of a place to work for anyway. So people need to have a little more faith in their skills. Those are themes, by the way, that you just talked about that resonate over and over in Bow Down. So let's dive in. I'm going to quote you from the introduction (laughs) of the book. I'm going to read to you from, from your book. You wrote this. You said, all of this got me thinking about why I'd always struggled to get what I want in the macro sense. Yes, I wanted to get a handle on my eating habits. Yes, I wanted to have a career that I could be proud of. Yes, I wanted to feel powerful about my finances, have a great sex-filled marriage, and walk and talk with confidence. I began to realize that there was no product or treasure map that would offer me easy solutions to any of the above. What I was seeking was a philosophy to live by. And as I'm reading this, as I'm starting to get into Bow Down, Lindsay, part of me thought, I'm like, this is a book as much for you I felt like you started out thinking, oh, I'm going to learn these business lessons. But it sounds like now you're even in the introduction, you're like, no, this is kind of what I need for me. 100%. And and the introduction came later in the book. I actually wrote the introduction later. As I was meeting with these women, I thought they were going to have all these answers like sort of step-by-step answers and the book is laid out in lessons, but they didn't really have answers because they didn't, they're still figuring these out for themselves and their answers were very personal and they gave feelings about their, their philosophy on life and what they've learned. And I realized I was sort of going through something in my life. I was, I was, I was about to turn 40 and I was doing a big risk, leaving my job to write a book. I, again, was mid-marriage, you know, my husband and I had been together for a long, a very long time and we were just trying to figure out what was next, you know, like it's, I had a lot of questions. I wanted to enter my phase two, hopefully out of four, you know, or at least three, (laughs) you know, I wanted to enter feeling confident, you know, and I ended up asking them questions that were purely about myself and then hope that they would be relatable to other women who were around my age, you know, whatever that means. But a lot of older women, my mom read it and she found it helpful too, you know. So it became very personal in a way that I didn't think it was going to be personal for sure. So at the beginning, as a stand-up comedian, I'm thinking about you, I don't know, you're on a park bench or something or having wine with friends and you're like, I've got this crazy idea. I'm going to talk to dominatrixes and it's going to be flipping hilarious. I mean, that was, that was me knowing a little bit about you, right? but that's just me internalizing what I think about you. Tell me about the original genesis of the book. So I had some interest from an agent about writing a personal finance book sort of based on spent, and I couldn't find something that would work. My idea that I have for spent, which I would love to do one day is do more of a studs turkle type, um, people like kind of a how I do it from an artist perspectives and what I learned and what their lives are like. My agent was like, I, that might be kind of hard to sell. So one day I want to do that. Hopefully maybe next year. I hope so. 
I don't know. It just came to me one day. I just, it was like a shtick, you know, I was like, well, what would be the most assertive <laughs> woman I could think of? And, and I have a dark side. I'm not afraid. You know, I, I'm, I was interested in seeing what it would be like. I have, I'm a you know, reporter. I'm not afraid to wander into a dungeon or to walk into a club and do stand up. I mean, I, you know, in the end, you just have to accept that you're going to bomb when you do comedy. You're going to bomb when you go up to strangers at a dungeon and no one wants to talk to you, <laughs> which happened a lot. Um, I don't want to make this too, too dirty for you, but like I, I had a lot of very awkward, uh, situations, but, uh, but in the end, you know, I was very, I was lucky that I was, I'm not afraid to cold call people. I wasn't afraid to just like put myself out there. When I spoke to the women, I was, it was very important to me to be very gracious to approach them with as much respect as possible. These women and, and sex workers in general, um, are not treated very respectfully by the media. They often feel very exploited. And I really wanted them to know that I wasn't there for a gotcha story. I wasn't looking for any creepy store. I wasn't looking for that. So I just really wanted to know about their philosophy and I wanted to dispel some myths about what they do. And they reluctantly were, you know, were very gracious and giving and generous with me. So I feel very, very blessed. That leads to a couple things. The reaction to the book you wrote is different when you talk to men about the book and women about the book. Talk about that for a second, because I found that kind of funny. Well, it was very funny in the beginning when I, you know, I worked at a startup you know, the younger guys are pretty cool. You know, people make fun of millennials and how awful that I think the millennials are pretty great. And so a lot of the guys I told, um, the older guys were very freaked out. You know, they were like, oh, well, like my boss couldn't believe I was leaving a job to do something so crazy. But um, it's awkward, you know, for a woman to be like, I'm writing a book about dominatrixes. Maybe it could be immediately very emasculating to them, which is silly. But my response to the book since then, I mean, I don't know. A lot of men have said they bought the book. They haven't given me that much feedback from it. But my husband said that he's taken some negotiation advice from it, you know, and some guys got in touch and they said something that they learned a little bit from it. But women got it right away. They all want to be able to say what they want, be more assertive. They don't want to sound like a bitch for asking what they want at work. They don't want to be nice all the time. They don't want to say yes to things when they really mean no. And this is women from all walks of of life, you know, whether you're like on the C-suite or whether, you know, working, you know, you're a cashier. We're all, we all want to sound better. We all want to sound smarter. We all don't want to be stepped on. So this is, a, it's a universal thing. And I found a lot of the books for women and encouragement were all very, they seemed a little bit elitist, you know, it was yeah. all very much for people yeah. of a certain age and class and money thing. And it's like, no, this is for everybody. I want to go through some of the lessons just in the first couple chapters and one you just referred to, which is saying, I want you found that dominatrixes are very clear about what they want and the people that they're working with are also have to be very clear. Like this is a, this is a relationship and a negotiation. Tell me about that. Absolutely. So it's a complicated question because if you are seeking the services of a dominatrix, no, you want to be in a situation, you want to be told what to do. You know, that's the thing. This is a person who wants to be taken out of control. The stereotype of a person who sees a dom is sort of is a person who is in control in their daily life. There's somebody who is a boss or there's somebody who's like a, who they, they want someone to be in charge. OK, when you come to see someone, these women are expensive to see. You know, they want someone to just be very clear. It's like you're going to sit over there. This is what you're going to do. This is what we're going to do. And it's a relief to have somebody just like, you know, and then and you th it got me thinking a lot about how clear language makes life easy for everybody. If you say, this is what we're going to do. This is what I want. This is what I don't want. Then the other person doesn't have to think too much about, well, what are they, what are they really trying to say? What does her body language mean? I don't, you know, I have a rule, like, don't try to read my mind and I won't try to read yours. And I think about all the time I would say things just to be nice, you know, instead of saying, I really don't want to go to this restaurant. I'd say, well, we could go there. 
But what I really meant to say was, I don't want to go there. <laughs> and like, what was, why was I being, and in the end, I not only was I ruining my own night, the other person didn't even have the chance. The other person might have been like, okay, let's go someplace else. I was like, I think about all the times I did things to be polite. Yeah. But you talk and about I, the high stakes. I mean, not to cut you off, yeah. but, but I'm going to anyway. But the higher stakes things like in work negotiations, totally. like we do so many things to be polite. And you've seen the studies as much as anybody, Lindsay, that women especially don't want to be characterized, want to get along, right? Be a team player. Yeah. And often, to your point, if they are a little bit um, uh, hard edged in a workplace, they're seen as the bitch in the office. And, totally. you know, it's 100 percent true. And women have to really toe that line. And it's frustrating because we just want to be able to come in and say what we want. Like, this is the plan. This is what we're doing. And you do have to do it with a smile, which is really annoying. And I don't have an answer to how to fix that in the workplace, how you should go in and and not have to smile. But if you do have to, if that's then you, 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 then you double need to ask for what you want. Then you have to go in and say, and come in with data. Don't come in with your feelings. It's very hard to say, this is what I've done the last six months. This is the job title I had. This is what I, this is how much I've moved the needle. And I believe I deserve this raise and just leave it there and don't qualify it with your feet and don't take your eighth grade feelings of inadequacy in there with you. Just keep them aside and just let the data do the talking. But the smiling thing is difficult. A friend of mine at work at my old job was told to smile and she was so upset because not because she was, because only she was told to smile about stuff that was upsetting to her team. And there, it blows. It, it, it's even frustrating to hear. But you, you say there's an art to being direct while still being courteous. Yes, I believe kind, honest, and direct. That is my ethos for life is don't qualify what you're saying. And you have to be true to yourself. I am nice. I am gracious. That's just who I am. But if you're kind, everyone appreciates that. If you're honest, you will you will be grateful to yourself because you said what you really meant. And the other person knows that you're not sugarcoating it. They might not like what you have to say, but that's sort of on them, you know, and direct. Don't beat around the bush. This was something I learned at my last job, which uh, I had a great CMO. She taught me a lot. And it is better to be direct with somebody, even if it hurts. But if you if you are kind about it, don't do like a sh- sandwich, which is like a compliment, the, um, the feedback and then a compliment. And we talked to, we talked to Ashley Goodall, who was just published in the Harvard business review last summer and has a fantastic book. He and Marcus Buckingham about workplace and workplace culture. He called it the same exact thing. Yes, the same thing. exact thing. Yeah. And it's point and it's confusing, but I think in the delivery of it, you do, you can cushion the delivery without couching it, you can say like, listen, like this might be hard to hear, but blah, 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 but I have to tell you. And then if the person gets upset, just like let them be upset. But by saying, but you're so great at all these other things, it's just, then there's like, well, did I do well or didn't I do well? And you can say like, here's what to do. And, you know, just there's a, it, there's an art to it. And people are so afraid of offending people. People are very afraid of insulting people. It is not easy. I don't have the answer to do it, but you, to be true to yourself and to get across what you want to say, you have to just stand strong, you know, and just say like, this is who I am. And especially if you're a boss, I think people are a little stronger than you think. And yeah. I think if you're a great communicator yeah. and you have a whole policy of being, having an open door and, you know, making direct feedback part of who you are from the beginning. I think we crave and, it. I mean, to me, I, 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 I crave direct people. I crave people telling me what they really think about me. I mean, don't get me wrong. I want you to be on my team. And I want to know that it comes from a place of love, not from, you know, somebody trying to put me down. But man, if I know you're on my team, I remember 
I used to buy really cheap shoes. And uh, I remember a mentor of mine telling me, he's, he's like, you're a financial planner and you wear plastic shoes. Like, don't get me wrong. It's cool that you want to save money, but people look immediately at your shoes and they're like, uh, why do My dad said that. My dad says says he could always tell, you know, but that is good advice and it's concrete advice. It's something that you can fix. It's not just like a personality flaw, which is hard to fix overnight. I mean, the, the help I had on my book by my friends who are editors, they gave me really direct feedback and they said, this is a mess. This is a mess. You need to fix this, this, and this. But I also asked for feedback. I said, this is what I need help with. I asked for a very specific help and they gave it back to me. I didn't just say, tell me what you think. And that comes I, directly, I think, too. I mean, reading Bow Down, I mean, the dominatrixes need feedback from the people totally. they're working with because, you know, there's sexual stuff going on here, but it's also big time psychology. And there is a significant 100%. downside. These women could totally mess somebody up psychology if they go too far or not far enough. Or I mean, it's got to be this spot on thing. Absolutely. And everything has to be negotiated beforehand. And sometimes things can get a little far. That's why you have safe words. But um I, one of the doms writes everything down on a whiteboard. Like, this is what we're going to do. I mean, it sounds very unerotic, but she did. It's, it's so important. Everyone's safety, emotional safety, everyone's physical safety. And if you're a professional, you, you want to do, no matter what you do, you want to do a good job and you want, you want to have a return customer with them to come back, tell their friends, you know? So, um, absolutely. And I found that I thought about that idea, but if you say what you want up front, you say what you agree on. And I thought about when you start a job and you agree on a job description and then suddenly they're throwing all this new stuff at you, how that's pretty unfair, but you just sort of go with it, you know, and people can be very pushy and you have to push back too. If you agree from a Dom perspective, if you agree to do one thing and they're like, Oh, how about this? How about that? But I'm already paying you so much. You know, how do you step back and say, actually, like I'm an, you know, they're kind of almost performance artists really, you know, it's like, I actually know what I'm doing. And, uh, that's not what you get for this amount of money. And, and, and in the end, like you don't want to give everybody what they want right away. You know, you want to want them to come back, come you back know? for more. Yes, of course. It's just, it's like everything else. It's like, leave them wanting more, you know, it's, it's showbiz. So yeah. Um, I forgot the thread. of that. <laughs> no, that's the part of the interview where I always just go, ta-da. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm done. Um, I mean, I want to talk about this for four hours, but I got just a couple more questions. A lot of this As I'm reading, you know, one big problem that I don't know, maybe you've seen in your marriage, I've had in mine, a lot of times couples don't communicate really well. And a lot of this, a lot of what I was reading and bow down is about effective communication, about being real with each other, about what you want for yourself and for your money. Yes. There wasn't as much money, direct money stuff in the book. If I had more time to write it, I probably sure. would have written a whole chapter about money. But um, maybe that's the next thing. Uh, no, but, but it really is about power. And I think absolutely. that translates. It isn't, I mean, your readers, Lindsay, are smart. I mean, as I'm walking through this, I, I totally saw the the synapse in my brain connect. That's awesome. The communication aspect is the most important thing. Um, to be able to say what you want and to be able to tell your partner what you want and what's important to you uh, is the most important thing. I This book was a big lesson for me in my own marriage. Like getting too specific, you know, I've been with my husband since we're 25, you know, and we had grown and we had changed and our careers had changed. And in the end, even though we were best friends, I was struggling to tell him certain things. I was afraid of what he would say. I was afraid it would... I, it was just a lot of fear. And you think about what am I so afraid if I'm, I'm not afraid to get up on stage and like bomb in front of like a bunch of drunks, but I am afraid to tell, 
to tell my husband that I, I don't know if I want to go back to work full time. I don't know what kind of, you know, if I want to, you know, we didn't decide not to have kids. It had a very big effect on our marriage. You know, like what kind of life do you want to have if you don't have children? And I didn't know how to begin those conversations. And we were from different backgrounds. I'm Jewish. I'm a little more yakky. He's a little more <laughs> reserved. And we both <laughs> needed some help to just say, like, no matter what you say, no one's going to walk out. No one's going to leave. But it's easier said than done. I have yeah. a lot of empathy for for people who just would rather, it's very easy to just let it go and just let it go forever. I just have a lot of empathy. And especially when it comes to money and secrets, anything with like a secret, I have a lot, I, I just get it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not easy to confess, especially to confess things that you've done that you're ashamed of. Like, oh my God, like it's so hard. And to most people, this whole relationship is a secret. You know, this guy's not going to go to work the next day and go, hey, guess what I did last night? You know, totally. And that's complicated too, you know, and it's very interesting. So that's, so people, a lot of men do see these women as men see sex workers in secret, you know, and that's something that, um, they have to figure out if they, this is just some sort of diversion for them or if they are sort of blocking some aspect of their lives that they can't share with their spouse. Some people do share with their spouse and their spouse says, that's not my thing. You know, like every, there's, you can't, you're not always going to get what you want when you're honest with your spouse. You know, you might, it's, it's, some of them might be like, ugh, you know, or some of them might be like, that's not my thing. Or some people might want to, I met some couples in their sixties who, when I was writing this book and they were like, ah, you know, we figured, you know, Life short. Let's give it a try. I thought that was the most romantic thing I ever heard. I was like, you guys are like goals, you know, that you care enough about each other to try something really out there together. So secrets are hard too. you know, it's like some people like to keep secrets and some secrets are damaging. Some secrets are just everyone's allowed to have a private life. But it's something that when you think about spending a lot of money that your spouse doesn't know about, you do have to think to yourself, well, what is that about? And what are you really asking for? You know, and and it's, there's no answer. I don't have the answer for you. You got to figure that out for yourself. I want to talk about some of the words in the book, and we're not going to get to this, but I want to tell everybody some of the words that keep coming back over, uh, that you keep going over and over, which are the idea of consent. You even kind of dumb this down a little bit and talk about hugging. I am not naturally a hugger. You talk about some people who are overly huggy and yeah. and, and there's this line, this idea of consent. I, th- I found fascinating negotiation, boundaries, safe words, respect. Uh, Uh just, just some powerful stuff here. Tell me though, I want to end on this. If you don't mind, Lindsay, tell me about one or two of these women that really affected you. Like you went in, I'm sure to some of these interviews thinking one thing and then came out with a whole different feeling. Can you tell us about one of the characters or two? Absolutely. Well, so one of the women I met at an event and she and I hit it off right away just as friends. And we met up and her name was Lola in the book. And we ended up meeting up and she sat down with me um, and she said, I have an hour for you. What do you need to know? And right away, I was like, I was so impressed that she just said like she was putting guardrails on her time because um, I was asking her a favor. And I said, I'm writing this book. I'm really looking for somebody who can who I can run things by and call BS on or tell me if I'm on the I'm on the wrong track on. And she said, I can do that. And she's like, what else do you need? And I was like, well, I don't know. I said, well, could you recommend some book sources, some sources for me to read? And she said, I can do that. She's like, what else? And I said, that's really it. Can I email you once in a while? She's like, yes. And then I went to shake her hand. She said, you can hug me. And I said, okay. And I gave her a hug. And she ended up being the most incredible person to work with. And she became, she's a true friend. And I just found the way that she set it up. She was doing me a favor. She was gracious. She was nice. She followed through with everything she said. And she was a reader on the book. So I just found her 
she would be shocked if I said this, but that was such a great way to get the book started in a weird way. And then she was the one who I had the session with her. I scheduled a, um, I want to know what it'd be like to have a session with a dom where everything is negotiated beforehand. Because the idea, we know when you're with a partner or a new partner, you just kind of like jump in bed with them and you're like, I don't know, let's see, <laughs> see what happens, you know. But it's a three that, ring like, circus is- all in one ring. Yeah. So I, so she was super fun and she said, let's do it. So I, she asked me what I wanted to do. I had never thought about it. And then we followed through with the session, which I have to say, I've seen a personal trainer and now I've seen a professional dominatrix and seeing a personal trainer is way more horrible and stressful, (laughs) (laughs) like way more upsetting, you know? And it was just so interesting that I just felt very safe. And it was really fun. And I got this idea of really what it was like. And I had to suddenly I'm like, oh, I get why people it's not my thing per se. That's not where my predilection, but I got it. And I really understood. And suddenly the book made a lot more sense to me. So the fact that she was willing to to do that with me and she, she I would have paid her for her time. But I, I, I think I put in the book, I gave her like a I gave her like a pastry. I gave her a babka, you know, it's a good babka. Um, so that was, that was great. That was, she's very important to me. And she got an extra shout out in the book for, you know, and just for being such a great friend. And, you know, and so she is a very important person to me. I love how right at the beginning of the relationship, she not only talked about the amount of time she had, but very direct, but sounded still gracious, right? Direct, yes. gracious, told you exactly what she could give you, what she couldn't give you. And a power move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, I was like, okay, well, can I do this and this and this? And immediately I was impressed. Immediately I felt her time was important. Immediately she was put like a little bit above me. Immediately I was impressed, you know, and I was thinking about like, how, how, what is that way of creating this sort of queenly atmosphere, but in a gracious way? Uh, Some of the doms talk about the difference between being a goddess and a mistress, which is all very personal. And to me, I think that I don't want to ever be cruel. But I would like people to, I wouldn't mind a little bit of a hushed uh, thing as I walk into a room, you know, I do want people to come to me and just value me and respect my time. And, you know, and when I'm nice to them, be like, thanks for being so great. You know, like I, that's what I want, you know? So I think that I just was very impressed by how direct and kind, but she did have time constraints. She was moving that night, you know, and it was winter and it was freezing. So, and we got a lot accomplished in that hour. That's the other thing too. We didn't, we didn't have to do small talk or BS. She's like, what do you need? How can I help you? And the books she recommended were incredibly interesting and very important. I think that's a technique though, is that when you tell somebody what the time constraint is ahead of time, all the BS goes away and it just says, okay, Hey, I got 20 minutes. We've got this stuff to cover and bam, 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 bam. Like you talk about meetings, you know, and about meetings at work and how they can just drag on and on and on and on. And dominatrix has figured that out. Like they, they, you're not going to have the first half be all this small talk. Like we're getting to business like now. First of all, they're not paying for small talk and small talk is boring. And also if someone, so people reach out to me a lot. Oh, can I have coffee with you? Can I have coffee with you? you know, I'm so nice. And now I'm trying to say, be like, if you want to see me come to Queens and most people are like, forget it. I don't want to talk to you that bad. you know. <laughs> or I'll say, um, I start to say now, hi, how are you? Blah, what are you up to? Then I'll be like, okay, how can I help you? Yeah. And I start, I say that earlier on and it immediately changes the tenor of the conversation and it becomes much more professional. And then I do have an out time and, and I shake hands. I go, I go, let me know how I can help you. And I try to give them all the help I can. I've learned this during that hour. And then after that, like I, I am pretty busy, but earlier than don't, you don't have to make small talk. You can say, hi, how are you? Thanks for reaching out. What can I do for you? Let's and I'm go. a smiler. I can't help it. Yeah. I'm a smiler. So yeah. I'm not going to pretend to not be. 
I found that in my financial planning meetings back in my old job, we were trained initially as salespeople to do small talk at the beginning. I never did that. I found if we got into it, you and I would find commonality and we would have these like we have today, we'll have these little journeys that are much more real partway through. We're like, oh, there's a commonality. And then totally. instead of the BS small talk, it's much more, much more with it. I find it exhausting too, uh, to be uh, honest, like to have to yeah. make small talk with someone who you don't know. I yeah. find very exhausting and, and boring. Oh, parties, especially around the holidays. I get so tired. Yeah. The book is yeah. called Bow Down Lessons from Dominatrixes on how to get everything you want. It's available everywhere. I have to ask you something else, though. And by the way, we'll link to the book on our show notes page at stackybedjamins.com. But I do want to ask you, since you know nobody listens to the show, Lindsay, it's just you and I, what's coming up on Spent? We got to ask about your podcast. Yes, thank you. So I brought back Spent, was did great when I did it in uh, 2016, 2017. I had to put it on hiatus when I went back to work at Stash. As I had a great job there. Um, I brought back a mini season about sex and money. I interviewed a porn star. Her name is Stoya. Uh, She talked about uh, royalties and residuals and payment processors. She was fantastic. She's she's great. And I spoke to these two doms. I talked about entrepreneurship and how they started their own business. You talked to, I, uh, you also talked to Allison Schrager about risk. Yes. I spoke yeah. to her about risk because she went out to Nevada to talk to some of the legal brothel owners, the late Dennis Hoff. And, uh, so I tried to find little bits of, of talk about sex and money and in, in sort of a different way. And that's the way I like to do things. I like to, I'm, I want to do mini series where I talk to different people and different perspectives about a topic. So looking into the future, as I wrap up the book stuff, I'm, I'm thinking about different things to do with, to do with Spence. And I wanted to cover labor stuff. I want to cover medicine. I want to keep it funny. Um, so I always want to have one funny comedy aspect to something because I think that's great and useful. But um, I'm looking at tackling things per topic and finding different angles and, and ways in. Uh, still very interviewee, still very storytelling more of an approach to that than an advice perspective. So I'm really excited to do that and to just grow Sprint as a, as a brand, which is scary. (laughs) I I know that feeling. I know that feeling. What's cool is while we're waiting for the new season, they're all evergreen. Everybody, you should go back and listen to these because they're, they are hilarious and fun and informative. Like this show, you're not going to get quote nuggets. There's no magic formula to spend hashtag no. Uh, spoilers. There's no, everything is very, my, my philosophy is that everyone's financial problems are a little bit different, but I do believe that different people's perspectives can help you. And I also think that you will learn things. It just might not be the things that you, you thought you wanted to know. Like I didn't know that porn stars don't get any royalties. I didn't realize that they have all this trouble. Adult performers have a lot of trouble keeping business accounts. I didn't know that they have all this trouble they have getting paid. There's all these things that you will learn about people and their jobs that are very interesting. And then it gets you thinking about other things like, oh, who else has trouble getting paid? Why do they have trouble getting paid? And then you start to dig in deeper and you start to learn things about how other people make money. And it is, and to me, it's, it's what you do to make an honest living is, is up to you. And so I thought it was, um, so you'll always learn something. It might not be what you think you wanted to learn. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's what I like. It's always a surprise listening to Spence. Absolutely. Lindsay, great talking to you. It's about time we got this done. And uh, let's do this again soon. You bet. I can't wait. Hey there, money nerds. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and welcome to my trivia slug. Just in case you don't remember what I say, today we're celebrating Dr. Seuss's birthday. I don't care if you don't like green eggs with your mutual funds. OG, my friend, you'll like it, OG, I am. 
Here's a side of something else. Here's a side of trivia for your listening pleasure. While Dr. Seuss's books may have been smash hits, he sold over 650 million copies. Some of his movie appreciation might have given him fits. While some of these movies help people take their wallet to drop, here's the question. Which film adaptation of Dr. Seuss's books is considered the biggest flop? I'll have your answer right after this. Bonjour. Welcome to French Made Easy with me, your host, Mathilde. Today, I'm joined by certified financial planner Devin Carroll, and together we will share a popular and simple French phrase so you too can use it in your own life. Sound easy? Sure. Today's phrase is Mutual funds with high fees make me uncomfortable, Larry. In French, you would say this popular phrase just like this. Larry, les fonds de placement avec des frais élevés me mettent mal à l'aise. Once again, Larry, les fonds de placement avec des frais élevés me mettent mal à l'aise. Now, let's hear certified financial planner Devin Carroll try it. Ready, Devin? Okay. Fonds communes de placement, Larry avec des honoraires, élevés me font mal à l'aise. Ugh, nailed it. Perfect. See how we sound almost exactly alike? You too can speak French easily and comfortably listening to Stacking Benjamins. See you next time. Au revoir. Welcome back, book-loving friends. It's time for the trivia to end. Today we're celebrating the birthday of a man who helped lots of kids say, Yes, you can. It's Dr. Seuss. Yes, you can win my trivia. You can win it with a guess. You can win it by saying less. But what was the answer to the question? You're going to love it. Yes, you can. What's the answer, Doug the Man? Here was the question. Which film adaptation of Dr. Seuss's books is considered the biggest flop? You can clean up how bad this movie is with a mop. The answer, The Cat in the Hat was an absolute mess. The film made $25 million or less. It received largely negative reviews and all its humor was considered rude. Mike Myers played the cat, but wasn't that great in his hat. The cherry on top of this whole thing? Dr. Seuss's widow, Audrey Geisel, thought the project didn't sing. She was so unimpressed with the movie version that she refused to allow any further live-action surgeon. Okay. Is this over yet? My script's done, so I'll say, you bet. See ya. Big thanks to Lindsay for stopping by the basement. Doug sure stuck around for a long time, didn't he? <laughs> he did. He did. What an interesting way to open up the eight weeks. But, but, but like a good boy, he, you know, faced the corner. <laughs> the, the entire time. I just say so many, so many, straight, like he was told. so many straightforward lessons there though. So, yeah. so many. Hey, let's run out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency put what you value first, your loved ones and your time. And that's why they've made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now for a free quote. And you'll find what we already know, which is that you don't want to waste your time with this OG. The application's simple. It's online. We talked earlier about getting this stuff done. Great way to get it done. Get it done quickly versus a lot of the legacy companies where you have to spend weeks waiting to get 
your policy approved. Policy prices are affordable. Their policies are issued by Mass Mutual, more than 160-year-old insurer, so you know where it's coming from. Today, uh, we just got a letter from Diana. Diana has an estate question, which is funny because she starts off, this being the dominatrix episode, she says, as the executrix, then she says, eyes forward, fellas, of an elderly family's estate, what options should I consider for the portion of the estate being left to two pre-teenage brothers. Their father is a child of the future deceased person. He has a disability-related income that will not allow him to accumulate assets, so his portion of the estate will be split between his sons. The future dead person's will mentions leaving the inheritance in a trust to the preteens. I don't have an active relationship with these shirt-tail relatives. I don't want to be a trustee for these funds. There's an uncle of the preteens whom I'm planning to recruit into that role. The estate will not be required to go through probate in our state, which is Wisconsin. If I don't have a probate judge dictating who the trustee will be, how the funds will be invested, and at what age the preteens will receive the proceeds from the trust, are all these decisions made at my discretion? Or will the trustee determine how the funds are invested and when the trust will be dispersed and dissolved since the will is moot on these points? Is this question just too weedy and state specific for you to respond to? Also, by the way, well, well, I'll get to the I'll get to the PS later on. But let's dive into this. This is some estate planning stuff, OG. So Diana is not the trustee, wants somebody else to be the trustee. But is the well? There's no trust. She said there's only a will. But it could be. It could end up being. And I think you need to look at the specifics, Diana, of your state. I had an attorney here in Michigan that would do something called a pop-up trust, meaning that there was no trust immediately. And by the way, there's significant downsides to this trust. Number one being, the trust is created on the date of death. And the bad news there is then you still have some small probate issues, but it's much better than the bigger, huge probate issues. So possibly, OG, this involves a pop-up trust. Yeah, I have no idea about the estate laws in in Wisconsin, but it sounds like it's ultra complicated. And a couple of things. Firstly, if you have no desire to be in charge of this, you have to make that known now. It sounds like whoever put you in charge is not dead yet. So if you don't want to be in charge, then you have to tell the person, don't put me in charge, put somebody else in charge, because it's not something that's a very easy process to get out of once you're kind of it. You mentioned that there's no probate, which I would find hard to believe if there's a will, a will indicates probate. You know, I guess if it's a small enough probate estate, then there's not any probate. But then what are we talking about in terms of inheritance money for two teenage children. One way to avoid all of this is just to list the kids as a beneficiary on the accounts that you want to have. If the person has a brokerage account and he wants it to go 50-50 to two kids, just leave them as a beneficiary. The problem is, is that I would never in a million years leave money to an underage kid because you'll, in most cases, end up with a court-appointed guardian for the money which will dictate how that money is invested and how that money is distributed until the kids turn 18. Once the kids turn 18, if you don't have any of this pre-established, then the kids just get the money at 18. And I was a pretty irresponsible 18-year-old. I would be pretty irresponsible with any large sum of money because at 18, any amount of money is a large sum of money. 
So I think this is a really good question for an estate planning attorney in your area. And this is one of those things where you got to begin with the end in mind. You have to look at this from the perspective of what do I want to have happen as the decedent, as the person who's issuing all this money out? Do I want the kids to have the money when they're 13? Do I want them to have it when they're 25? Do I want them to have restrictions around it? They can only use it for college. Is it for a new home purchase when they're 40? Is it for their grandkids? You know, you can establish all of those rules while you're still living and create the trust that needs to be created to have it managed appropriately. The do nothing plan, which is what you have, gives the kids money at 18 and causes a whole heck of a lot of issues between now and 18. So this is one of those things where, you know, I've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail and you kind of need to get an estate planning attorney's opinion on this, a qualified opinion if it is pieces together and if it is the pop-up trust work that i referenced earlier what i would do diana is request a meeting with the attorney because if if there is there's an attorney involved and i'll get back to that as well but but yeah. if so request a meeting with the attorney because the attorney can then walk you through all of these questions because it'll end up being at the end it'll end up being you and the attorney working on this and by the way if the will says a trust in it and there is no attorney involved that that junk drives me crazy because you know what ends up happening nobody knows how that stuff works people go on some facebook forum or some website and they hear hey you can do all this crap yourself well maybe you can but then you pass away and leave somebody like me in charge and i don't know anything about it guess what i got to do i got to use your money to get an attorney to walk me through it later and it's an attorney that I choose instead of somebody who you could have already done your due diligence on. Like one thing I liked about choosing an attorney myself was that I know this person can explain everything to my family about how it works. And for me, that's a huge thing for the attorney to do. Not only do they know the law, but they can walk everybody through why this is important and how it all works. Do it yourself, estate planning. At this level, especially, not not yeah. great. If there's no attorney involved with this, I'm with you, OG. There's got to be one. Well, and this goes back to the very beginning. If you don't have any interest in any of this, then get out of it now. Tell the person, no, I'm not. I have no interest in this. I can't help you. This is not my expertise. I do not want this responsibility because the current plan is you're responsible. <laughs> you're like, I don't want to be the trustee. I don't want to be the one in charge of distributing this to the teenagers. Guess what? You are that person right now. So get out of it now if you want to get out of it. Thanks for the question, Diana. By the way, Diana's PS, I should get to. She says, since you and Paula talk about the Royals so much, I'm wondering if old Git would be a fitting tag for OG. He does sound pretty crabby most of the time. We're going to start calling you old Git. I like that. No. I don't get it. But You don't follow um, Royals. Nope. No, I don't. Thanks. And to, uh, she says. Uh, thank you for. <laughs> That compliment? I don't know. It's a great I'm compliment. not grumpy. I'm not grumpy. No. No, you're never grumpy. Never. It doesn't happen. Thanks to Doug for making the show worthwhile. Listen, she says, signed, the not dead princess of Wales. Diana. It's awesome. Thanks for that, Diana. You have a question for us? Call our voicemail. Get a free t-shirt. I know. Facebook.com. I want a free t-shirt. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash voicemail for that and you too can have your question answered by us all right that's going to do it for today big thanks to everybody i'll let doug go through all of the many people we have to thank for today's show but thanks to all of you for 
come back for another eight weeks. Man, we got a great, we have an action packed eight weeks of shows as we help each other roll towards spring. Can't wait for it's that. It's already spring here. So easy on that. Nah, 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 nah. Uh, but we get to celebrate winter. I like celebrating winter. <laughs> you can have winter from time. October to April. <laughs> All right. Last thing here is uh, this. If you need better financial planning help in your corner, OG and his team have the doors open. So get on their calendar by going to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG. All right. That's going to do it for today. Doug, take it from here, man. What should we have learned today? What should we have learned today? First, take a lesson from Lindsay. Take control. If you want to see a change in your life and finances, the first step is to redefine those relationships, keeping you in place. Second, take a lesson from our headlines. If you are making a buck, but are still living paycheck to paycheck, you need to make a budget before you find yourself retired and broke. But the big lesson, don't try to rhyme the whole show. They don't pay us all enough dough. No, Joe. No rhyme this show. Special thanks to Lindsay Goldwork for stopping by the basement. Are you looking to take more control of your finances? You can order Lindsay's book, Bow Down, from her site, lindsaygoldwork.com, or through our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. This show is created by Joe Salcihide, produced by Richie Rudder-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter, at SBenjamin'sCast, or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I do not like computer jokes. Not one bit. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. I just got a message. I was going to talk about a movie. Maybe we'll do that on, on, on Wednesday, but I just got this awesome message from a listener to the show, Mike. I'm a big fan of board games as a couple people might know, but I also think that some of the lessons in games, here's what I don't like. I don't like games that teach you things. I really, when you see educational and board game together, you should encourage whoever that designer is to please stop because I don't want an educational lesson when I'm playing a game. But but I will tell you that I learn a ton from playing games, not directly. Like as an example, there's a game called Power Grid. 
and in, I think you've played Power Grid. Mm-hmm. In, in Power Grid, you're creating a network of utilities. And it's interesting that while it does have everything from coal to oil to nuclear power to wind power and garbage, it doesn't try to teach you really anything about those. However, what I, what I will say is this, and this is what I like about games and the, and the power of teaching that games have, is that now every time that I see something about utilities where before I was just looking blankly at the piece and flipping past it in the newspaper or my flipboard or wherever it might be. Now I'm like, Oh, more news about wind power. Oh, what's going on with coal? Oh, you know, so I'm very, very interested. And it's because of power grid that I got there. The game's just a shill for the utilities industry. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) I just know that I'm very interested now in how utilities work. And I know a game about like how to make cheeseburgers. Oh, no, 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 no. Get this Hasbro is bringing back this game from the 1980s. Another game that doesn't teach you anything, but subliminally, well, I'll let you listen. I'm mad about shopping! Here at Mall Madness! Catch the madness, it's Mall Madness. Attention mall shoppers. It's Mall Madness, the talking shop to you drop game. Fail at the fashion boutique. Catch the madness, it's Mall Madness. I love my own credit card. It's Mall Madness. No deposits. Eight, $100. All withdrawal. Catch the madness. It's First out of the mall madness. with all their stuff wins. I was born to shop. <laughs> I get a credit card. I don't need any money. I can go crazy at the mall, and the first one who gets everything on the list and maxes out your credit card wins. Some great lessons there, OG. Are we at the top yet? <laughs> <laughs> Are we at the top yet? Oh, this piece comes from Engadget. Basically, we're just going to like teach kids how to shop on Amazon. Ugh, uh, Hasbro is bringing mall madness back for old fans and everyone else missing local malls that became a casualty of the retail apocalypse. Companies given the electronic shopping theme board game a makeover for 2020, 16 years after the latest version came out. According to Bustle, the 2020 version features a 3D game board. It will allow players to choose a personality and play as Gwen, a Sage, an Avery, or a Dax. Feel free to imagine what personalities those characters have, and we'll have updated storefronts. Its core gameplay remains the same, though. There's still an electronic unit that directs players to their next move, tells them where the sales are, and also makes sound effects like cha-ching. This is like the worst idea ever. Please don't buy your kids mall madness. I don't even know what they'll say. (laughs) It's so bad. It's so bad. Thanks for sending that to us, Mike. Well, stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's Military Appreciation Month, and we are giving out shout outs to all of our friends who have served in the military. And let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend, OG, who spent time in the military. And of course, we know what a giver he is, even when he pretends like he's being uh, Mr. Surly. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. 
take a look at all the Military Appreciation Month offers and their usual offers. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.